0: Welcome to the primary ride home for Wednesday, May 15th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, O'Rourke reintroduces his campaign. We check in on Joe Biden. And what the primary candidates think about daily press briefings. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. Beto O'Rourke has embarked on a plan to reintroduce his campaign. So, long story short, O'Rourke was doing very well initially, but his polling numbers are either flat or going down. He was at 5% in last week's Morning Consult poll, and in another poll released on Sunday, he was down 7 points from a month ago. And probably related to that, he has not broken through into the news cycle lately. So, O'Rourke is doing a bunch of mainstream media appearances rather than sticking solely to the small local events that he loves so much. He was on the Rachel Maddow show on Monday, and he went on The View yesterday, and on Tuesday next week, he'll speak at a CNN town hall. So here's the thing. Listen, if you're Beto O'Rourke, and you are reintroducing yourself, and you're making sure your campaign staff explicitly calls it a reintroduction using that term over and over, you've got to quote Jay-Z, his song Public Service Announcement specifically. Okay, like the opening line is literally, allow me to reintroduce myself. So here's how the Maddow interview began.
1: The Associated Press uh, reported over the weekend that you are not relaunching your campaign, but you're planning sort of a a reintroduction to shore up your standing at this point now with more than 20 people running. Did you think that was a fair take?
2: We've been on the road now for eight weeks, Mm -hmm. uh, traveling to over 15 states, have held more than 150 town halls.
0: And here's how, in my professional opinion, it should have gone.
1: The Associated Press uh, reported over the weekend that you are not relaunching your campaign, but you're planning sort of a, a reintroduction to shore up your standing at this point now with more than 20 people running. Did you think that was a fair take?
2: Allow me to reintroduce myself. My name is Ho, H to the O, V. I used to move snowflakes by the up-
0: All right, with that out of the way, let's get into the meat of that interview. Early on, O'Rourke talks about how his social media strategy of streaming everything and archiving those streams provides an unusual level of transparency. Let's listen in.
2: Um, And I think it also... Demands uh, a higher level of accountability for me everything that i 'm saying is streamed mm-hmm. uh, to, to anyone who wants to watch it so if you wonder whether I pull my punches in one community, uh, a certain demographic, uh, say something different somewhere else, um, you can go on Facebook and, and watch all those because they're they're all archived including so including
1: a fundraiser that you did yeah tonight. yeah.
2: We, we held our first fundraiser in the eight weeks that we've been in the campaign, hmm. and we live-streamed it. Um, and it was a great chance for us to thank those who made that transformational election in Texas possible. Uh, many of them were helpful there. And and to also thank them for joining hundreds of thousands of others who've comprised what I hope will be the largest grassroots campaign in, in American history. And I wanted to make sure that was live-streamed so that you see, again, exactly what I say um, to that audience and, and that group of people.
0: And we're going to have one more clip from that Maddow interview. In this one, O'Rourke has just talked about how he famously visited every county in Texas, which is a very, very big state, and how that allowed him to get in touch with a lot of voters. Well, Maddow asks the obvious follow-up question there. Have a listen.
1: I wonder, though, when I was just talking about that calendar for the Democratic primary, it's like, you know, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, and then it's almost the whole rest of the country. I mean, that right, right away, three days after South Carolina, it's Texas, it's California, it's a dozen other states. Right. That makes it really hard to make sure that you're showing up in Michigan, in Oregon, in Wisconsin, in every community like you're talking about, which was so much a key to how you ran in Texas.
2: Right. It's hard, but we're doing it. Um, So 15 states in, in eight weeks, again, more than 150 town halls, And and showing up to those town halls is not just a means of introducing myself. It's a way to learn about what's most important to those that I want to serve. So I'll give you an example. We were in Pacific Junction, Iowa.
0: Okay, so I'm cutting that off because it goes into a discussion of flooding that really doesn't have anything to do with the question. But the first part of O'Rourke's answer is what I think is truly relevant. It speaks to what his campaign has actually been doing so far, a zillion tiny events. But he doesn't quite mention what's about to change. Remember, he says he's visited 15 states in 8 weeks, plus he's held more than 150 town halls. Now, he doesn't give a timeline for when those town halls took place, but I'm going to guess that that's since he's announced in March, maybe? But that would mean roughly 3 town halls every day, including weekends, since he entered the race. So, maybe he's counting some of these very small events as town halls, and that's okay. Anyway, this reintroduction, at least according to the Associated Press and other media outlets, is about adding way more national media, presumably at the expense of at least some of those smaller local events. But, according to the AP, the campaign wants to do both. Reading from the AP here, quote, O'Rourke acknowledges he struggled to find his presidential campaign footing. I think, in part, I was just trying to keep up when I first started out, he said after addressing about 40 people at a recent house party in Newton, Iowa. I really feel like I found my rhythm and my pace, and I just feel comfortable, and I feel like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. His top aides deny that a full reinvention, or Beto 2.0, is in the works. They note that O'Rourke plans to keep packing days with as many as half a dozen campaign events. End quote. Aside from the added focus on national media, the AP reports that our work is also reorganizing his campaign staff in general. He's adding 16 new staffers in Iowa, plus writing and releasing more detailed policy proposals, which, by the way, tend to get a lot of media coverage. And also, private fundraiser events are now part of the picture. This is a stark contrast to his previous position on that kind of thing. Reading from Politico here, quote, O'Rourke's Maddow appearance followed a high-dollar fundraiser in New York City on Monday, the first of his campaign. While Joe Biden has granted reporters pooled access to his fundraisers, O'Rourke streamed his remarks at the event live on Facebook, end quote. So, is it working? Well, it's too early to tell, aside from the fact that O'Rourke has gotten media attention like this just for talking about this stuff. When this week's polling comes out on Monday next week, I'll let you know if voter opinion has changed.
1: That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car
2: shopping the way it should
1: be. Convenient, comfortable. Ah,
2: Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are.
0: I haven't mentioned Joe Biden much on the show since he announced, except to point out that he's winning in every poll out there, and he's doing especially well with black voters. So let's take a few minutes to catch up with Biden and see what he's up to. First up, President Trump has been spending a lot of time talking about Biden. He talks about Biden on Twitter. He talks about Biden at campaign events. There's an excellent article about this in the New York Times by Jonathan Martin and Maggie Haberman titled, Trump can't stop attacking Biden. GOP strategists wish he would. Reading from the Times here, quote, Matt Gorman, a veteran of past Republican presidential campaigns, said that Mr. Trump was simply handing Mr. Biden a gift. In a Democratic primary, attacks from President Trump are the best thing that can happen to you, Mr. Gorman said. It elevates you, gives you a huge fundraising boost, and sucks the oxygen from your competitors. The president's drumbeat of attacks on Mr. Biden have also gotten the attention of congressional Republicans, who would prefer a more easily caricatured boogeyman on top of the Democratic ticket this year. Bernie Sanders is the perfect guy for us, said Chris Lacivita, a longtime Republican strategist. He looks like the professor out of Back to the Future and is a hardcore socialist. End quote. But that might not be a strategic or even conscious decision, really. Leading into our next point about Biden, here's one more quote from that same time story Some Republicans close to Mr. Trump paint a more simplistic portrait of the president's actions. That he has simply been consuming cable news coverage about Mr. Biden and firing off tweets based on the coverage and polling on the Democratic race he hears about on the air. And that brings us to item two. In an article for 538, Drew Milmehta wrote about how much cable news is covering Joe Biden and it is impressive. Biden is getting about as much coverage as the rest of the Democratic field combined. A week ago, he was beating the entire field combined by a comfortable margin. If you look at Meta's graphs, it's basically a giant Biden spike at the top, followed by a much smaller spike for Sanders, and then smaller ones still for Warren, Harris, and Buttigieg rounding up the top five. So, Meta's analysis lends credence to the theory floated in the Times piece about what is driving the president's attention. Reading from 538, quote, The greatest share of Biden's clips last week were on Fox News, as were clips mentioning Sanders. But Warren saw most of her coverage on MSNBC. End quote. Yeah. Well, and that leads us to item three, which is an article in Bloomberg by Sahil Kapoor titled, Biden's early dominance tests the strength of Democratic left. It's an examination of what exactly the Democratic Party is these days in terms of ideology. Kapoor notes that major candidates like Sanders have rejected the idea of compromising on many of their key principles, like Medicare for All and the Green New Deal. But Biden believes that compromise is fine and, in fact, good. Reading from Bloomberg here, quote, Biden has promoted consensus building and given a cold shoulder to Medicare for all. Yet he's leading his nearest rival, Sanders, by 20 to 32 points in five national polls taken since he began his campaign on April 25th. Terry Shoemaker, a 71-year-old lawyer from Concord, New Hampshire, and longtime Biden supporter, has a theory why. Twitter Democrats are not representative of the Democratic Party, Shoemaker said. Democrats have to nominate somebody who can go toe-to-toe with Trump, and he's the guy. End quote. This precisely echoes an opinion piece from Monday in the New York Times by Michelle Goldberg, titled, Twitter isn't real life if you're a Democrat. And it bears the subhead, quote, the online left doesn't like Joe Biden. Voters seem to. End quote. So this whole discussion argues that the most left-leaning members of the Democratic Party are very active on social media platforms. They are, as we say, very online. And Biden is competing in a field where many major candidates are to his left. Not all of them, but a lot. But here's how I look at it. The point of the primary election process that we're in right now is to try to figure out what the party's actual base is. Is it a centrist group that's fine with somebody like Biden? Is it farther to the left, looking to somebody like Sanders or perhaps Warren? That's what we're here to figure out. And it's what I'm trying to give you context about every day. It's not up to me to figure out the one true answer and tell you how to vote. It's up to you to vote in an informed way, and then for the party to listen to that outcome. And the party is not just people on Twitter. All right, micro rant over. Let me read again from Bloomberg. Quote, Campaigning in New Hampshire this week, Biden predicted that Republicans will have an epiphany and work constructively with Democrats after the Trump years are over. The thing that will fundamentally change with Donald Trump out of the White House, not a joke, is you will see an epiphany occur among many of my Republican friends, Biden told reporters at the Works Cafe in Concord. If we can't change it, we're in trouble. This nation cannot function without generating consensus. It can't do it. His remarks were swiftly pilloried by some progressives who called Biden's hopes for compromise with the GOP starry eyed and naive. End quote. And here's some audio posted to Twitter from The Hill in which Biden expresses these views to a crowd in Nashua, New Hampshire. Listen in. And ladies and gentlemen, the third reason I'm running out there is we got to, and I know I get criticized for this,
2: but if I'm wrong, we're in real trouble. We have to unify this country. Our political system is broken. It's flat broken. And, folks, everybody tells me, no, 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 that's naive. That's the old days. Well, if that's the old days, guess what?
0: We're in deep, deep trouble. Because nothing can happen in this country of consequence without consensus, without a consensus. That's how the system was built, to avoid the abuse of power. Three equal branches of government. And we're in a situation now, folks, where I don't agree with my friends. And we got a lot of good people
2: running who say, no, no, that's old time politics. When you can't agree and generate a consensus, guess what happens? All the power goes to the executive
0: for abuse. That's what this guy's all about. So now the test for Biden is whether Democratic primary voters would prefer someone who is a hardcore leftist or whether they would prefer Biden, who is comparatively centrist and actually believes the country can change in a post-Trump era, becoming less polarized. And honestly, I don't know. Keep listening, and we will find out together. And last up today, in previous presidencies going all the way back to the Nixon days, regular scheduled press briefings in the White House have been the norm. These are events in which the press secretary delivers whatever news is coming out of the executive branch, and then a group of journalists clamor to get a question in. If we cast our minds back to the distant past, say, oh, for instance, three years ago, this was something that happened pretty much every day. But during this presidency, daily briefings have been gone for quite a while. In fact, All briefings appear to be suspended at this point. The last time we had a scheduled briefing from Press Secretary Sarah Sanders was more than two months ago. This is not normal. But it is up to the president to choose what kind of access to give to the media. The flip side is that the next president has that same prerogative. In an article for The New York Times, Karen Tumulty did two things. First, she covered the history of the daily briefing. And I strongly encourage you to go read about that. There's a link to it in the show notes, as always. And yeah, it does cover cool stuff like how Nixon covered up a swimming pool to make the briefing room. Anyway, the second thing she did was Tumulty reached out to 22 of the primary campaigns asking the following question, quote, if their candidate is elected, will he or she require their press secretary to schedule on-the-record briefings for the White House media at least once a week, end quote. At the time of this recording, Tumulty had only heard back from 15 campaigns. Seven of them said that, yes, they would commit to at least a weekly briefing. No problem. That list is Booker, Bullock, Buttigieg, Gillibrand, Harris, Ryan, and Warren. Eight of the responding campaigns went ahead and volunteered more than a yes or no. They said specifically that weekly briefings were insufficient and that their candidate would commit to daily briefings. Now, because the question wasn't phrased in terms of whether the candidate would pick daily or weekly briefings, it is impossible to know for sure whether that first group would support daily briefings. But I'm going to take a wild guess here and say, of course they would. That's the norm. In retrospect, the question probably should have been worded a little bit better, but whatever. Anyway, here's the list of the eight campaigns who explicitly volunteered to do daily briefings, even though they weren't asked about that Biden, Castro, Lickenlooper, Inslee, Moulton, O'Rourke, Sanders, and Swalwell. So by the way, what that means is all 15 campaigns that actually responded said either yes or very, very much yes. All right, so assuming any Democrat ends up winning in 2020, you can expect a return to the site of a press secretary getting hollered at in the good old press briefing room. Well, that is it for another episode of The Primary Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. So today's show includes the most audio clips of any episode so far. And again, I'm curious whether that's still feeling like a plus, or maybe if we're going too much in that direction. If you have a chance and you have an opinion, let me know on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all tomorrow.